2006, November 1st. Today is Lecture 29 on the Earth's Atmosphere, which will begin in just a moment. So yesterday we talked about the interior of the Earth, what the Earth looks like on the inside as, as, as deduced by seismic observations by geologists. And also, what, is, what do we see on the surface? Why is it the surface is so dynamic? Why are the Earth rocks so young? And the answer we saw is that the Earth is extremely dynamic. The crust is broken up into 16 tectonic plates that grind past each other, bash into each other. When they bash into each other, they shove, like a, a, an oceanic plate will get shoved into the mantle and melted, and all the rock clocks will get reset. But also you get tremendous uplift. That's why, for example, in a place where the plates are running into each other, where the India plate's running into the um, Eurasian plate, I think those are the right names. My geologist friends will certainly call me afterwards if I'm wrong. The force of that is actually shoving the Himalayas up into high altitude. That's why when climbers up on the heights of, of Mount Everest actually see layers of limestone with marine fossils in them 29,000 feet above sea level. Uh, when the plates grind past each other, you get transverse faults, you get earthquakes like the San Andreas Fault. But the point is, what you get is a tremendous dynamic system in which the Earth's surface is in most of its places being constantly repaved. Rocks are being melted, new rocks are being brought to the surface, this new surface is being built, and that's why on average the Earth's surface is only around 100 million years old. There's another reason why the surface has the appearance it does, and that's the effect of erosion from wind and water and lots of other effects that can wear down old terrains and begin to slowly but surely erase some of those old features. And this brings us to the other aspect of the Earth that's going to be interest, of interest to us, this very, very thin shell of air that rides over the surface of the Earth known as the atmosphere. The Earth has a very large, dynamic, and interesting atmosphere, but it's not the only atmosphere elsewhere in the solar system. So just like yesterday, I've succeeded in probably offending all of my geologist colleagues because I did all of their profession in one day, the, or at least gave the... Um, the executive summary of Earth geology that we need to form a basis of comparison with the rest of the planets. So too, I'm going to offend all those people who do climate change, atmospheric dynamics, and things like that. I'm only going to talk about an executive summary of the Earth's atmosphere that's essential to provide us in astronomy with the basis for comparison with other planets throughout the solar system. So the key ideas today, what the basic properties of the Earth's atmosphere we're going to concern ourselves with today, so we're going to start out with the composition of the Earth's atmosphere. Now, some of this is a statement of fact. The composition is primarily nitrogen, oxygen, argon, and water vapor with a notable lack of hydrogen helium. And why it's this mix of stuff is actually of great interest to us because that's what we're going to find is different mixes of gases on different planets. That's going to tell us something about the past of those planets. We're then going to introduce the greenhouse effect. The greenhouse effect is not just about global warming. The greenhouse effect is a fundamental process that occurs in all atmospheres. And it has to what it's going to do is actually explain why the Earth is as warm as it is. It may not seem that warm on a day like today, but in fact the Earth is a lot warmer than it would be without an atmosphere. And we'll see why that's important. This is something we're going to look for on other planets. We're going to see the degree to which a greenhouse effect does or does not play a role in determining the atmospheric properties. We'll then say a bit about the vertical structure of the atmosphere, the fact that the pressure and temperature fall off as you go up vertically. That vertical structure also has some points of comparison with other planets, and so we'll see what it looks like in our own home. And finally, we're going to end the lecture by talking about the origins of the Earth's atmosphere. 
How did it start out? We're going to find out that the Earth's atmosphere originally was mostly carbon dioxide. The primordial atmosphere was a lot different than the atmosphere we're breathing today. And it has steadily evolved over the course of the Earth's history. And we're going to see how that evolution has been driven by a, by a variety of forces, including biology, which is, gives rise to oxygen, and is currently having a new driver introduced to it, namely human activity, which is still slowly altering the atmospheric composition. And we're going to use this, again, as a basis for comparison with other planets. When we look at Mars, when we look at Venus, we're going to ask, what's going on here? What was different about the history of this atmosphere? Why did it evolve the way it did? And we're going to be asking those questions, always coming back to the questions of the Earth. So that sets the basic theme of what today is. We're learning about those parts of the atmosphere that we care most about that tell us how to begin to make a comparison with the other planets. So let's just start out with the simplest way of describing the atmosphere. Let's look on the side of the cereal box, as it were, and see what the composition is. In order of most common to least common component, the two most abundant constituents of the Earth's atmosphere are nitrogen, molecular nitrogen, and the N2 molecule, two nitrogen atoms stuck together, makes up 70% of the atmosphere that we breathe down here on Earth. The other 21% is made up of molecular oxygen, O2, two oxygen molecules stuck together. So you add those two numbers up together and you get 98% of the Earth's atmosphere is nitrogen molecules and oxygen molecules. You follow that within 1% of water vapor. Yesterday, there was an awful lot of water in the air, but there was a lot of water vapor. And at any given time, it's around 1%. So again, do the math up here. We're already up to 99% of the constituents of the Earth's atmosphere. The remaining 1% is quite a mixed bag, but some of that bits are very, very important to us. One of them is rather odd. It's not what you would have expected. The fourth most abundant element in the Earth's atmosphere is, in fact, the gas argon. Argon is a pure atomic gas. Argon is one of the so-called noble gases, like helium and neon. It does not chemically react with anything, and it makes up just a shade under 1%. Argon is a leftover from a lot of the processes that form the solar system and also processes going on on the Earth. Now we're getting pretty close. We got 99.93%. The last 0.07%, you might think, well, why am I going to bother to mention them? Because they have an impact on the atmosphere quite out of proportion to, their, to how much they reside in the atmosphere. Carbon dioxide, which is what we breathe out when we're, when we're respirating and what plants suck in, is about 0.035%. So about half of that 0.07, no, I'm sorry, point, yeah. 0.07% that we have to worry about. About half of that's carbon dioxide. And then we start getting into stuff where you literally get traces. Where I'm not even going to bother to mention the percents because they're so small. But they're going to be things like methane. It's our first introduction here to methane. It's the CH4 molecule, a, carbon, uh, a molecule with a carbon surrounded by four hydrogens. It's a very, very common molecule. We're going to see it throughout the solar system. Various of the so-called inert gases, neon, helium, krypton, and xenon, they're the other noble gases in addition to argon. But notice we go from argon, it's just shade under a percent, whereas all the other noble gases are just traces. There's some interesting clues going on in that. And then finally, in addition to all the gases and molecules we have in the atmosphere, there's stuff, solid bits of stuff. We'll call generically particulates. There'll be silicate dust, very fine dust, for example, from the Saharan Desert, or rock dust, silicate dust, sea salt. You blow a wind across the ocean, you evaporate off water, 
into water vapor, well, what happens to the salt that's contained? It forms really, really fine salt crystals that get lofted into the air. If you've ever spent time near or live near the ocean, you find out that cars corrode quite a bit, even though it never snows and they never salt the roads. And the reason is because there's always this sort of salt tang in the air. Then you get things like sulfates, uh, sulfur dioxide, hydrogen sulfide, things that have that sort of that stinky, rotten egg smell. These things come out of volcanoes, and some of them come up out of um, industrial processes, you know, the tailpipes of cars. And then kind of et cetera. Uh, soot, industrial soot, uh, smoke particles, things like that. These particulates are actually fairly important. They actually also are going to play a role in the Earth's atmosphere. I mention them mostly because they play a role in what we'll call the thermal balance of the atmosphere. They act to absorb and re-emit radiation that comes from the sun. So here's kind of a nice picture of what the Earth's atmosphere looks like. Um, I don't know if we've got, yeah, it's not too dark in here. You can just barely see the atmosphere. You're barely sensible of it. We do notice the atmosphere, of course, because it is the place where weather occurs and you get the clouds that cover up the land. This is actually looking towards the Mediterranean. There's Italy and Greece, for example, on this map. This beautiful um, NASA picture of the Earth. But you can see that the atmosphere is a very, very thin shell. It's much smaller than the total diameter of the Earth. And it doesn't seem to contain very much material to us, but in fact, it's actually very important. What little bit is there actually makes a big difference. Now, one of the things that's notably missing from all of that list of constituents of the Earth's atmosphere is hydrogen. Hydrogen is the most common element in the universe. So if I go out into space, I go out into deep space, and I suck up a big bag of whatever happens to be around me, it may take me a while to collect it, but I do that. I'm going to find it's about 77% hydrogen, about 23% helium, and traces of stuff. And yet when I look at the Earth's atmosphere, it is completely unrepresentative of the typical composition of the rest of the universe. Hydrogen is notably absent. And also helium is not there either. So the two most abundant elements, hydrogen and helium, are virtually absent. Hydrogen's barely there at all, and helium's just a trace. It was on the bottom of that and other stuff. Why? Right? The sun is basically mostly hydrogen and helium. The planets were assembled during the formation of the solar system out of the same stuff the sun formed of. So why isn't there a lot of hydrogen here? Well, there's a couple of reasons that are actually quite important to us and that we're going to see repeated throughout the solar system. Hydrogen and helium are the two smallest, lightest elements in the periodic table. Because they're light at a given temperature, they're going to have very, very high speeds. Remember that the temperature of a gas is related to the speed of the internal energy of the gas. If you give energy, kinetic energy, to, a, to an object with a certain mass, its speed is going to be inversely proportional to the square root of its mass. So a really light particle can move very fast. It's going to have the same energy as a big particle moving slowly. The energy goes basically like mass times velocity squared. So tiny particles, tiny lightweight particles, are going to move really fast at a given temperature. Big molecules like oxygen and nitrogen are going to move proportionally slower. So as a consequence, when you get into the temperature of the Earth's atmosphere, the hydrogen and helium are moving very fast. And in fact, on the Earth, their mean atomic speeds exceeds the escape velocity from the surface of the Earth. So they are, in a sense, accelerated by the, they're heated, they're moving due to the temperature of the Earth fast enough that they can break free of the Earth's gravity. Now this doesn't mean that they all suddenly go poof away in an instant, but it does mean that over time they're going to simply drift off into space. So what you get is a sort of a form of evaporation. The Earth holds on to its gases by gravity. 
But if those gases are hot enough and their mean thermal speed exceeds the escape velocity due to gravity, then those gases will literally evaporate away and escape into space. We refer to this as atmospheric retention. So the Earth's atmosphere may have initially had a lot of hydrogen and helium. We're going to talk in a later lecture about what the actual composition is for the origin of the planets. But it was never able to hold on to it. The Earth is not heavy enough. Its mass is too small and its gravity is too weak to hold on to hydrogen and helium. So the bottom line is the Earth is too small to retain its atmosphere hydrogen and helium. It would have to have a much bigger gravity, a much bigger mass, I'm sorry, which gives it a bigger surface gravity. That bigger surface gravity means that the escape velocity gets higher and higher. So if you want to hold on to hydrogen, you've got to be sufficiently big that your gravity has a high enough escape velocity that the escape velocity is bigger than the mean thermal velocity. There's two ways to play that game. Okay, one is to make yourself big. The other, as you might guess, is to make yourself really cold. If you make yourself really cold, you slow down the mean atomic speeds, and you can actually drop the speed below your escape speed. So the Earth is not only too small to retain its atmosphere, it's also too small and too warm. But we'll see that in more detail when we go out to other planets. Why do they have the atmospheres they do or not? But in the case of hydrogen and helium, the Earth is big enough to hold on to big molecules, but it can't hold on to hydrogen and helium, and that's why we don't find any in the atmosphere, even though these are the most abundant elements in, in the universe. Which brings us to the next question. Okay, so the universe is small and warm. Or the universe is small and warm. No, it's not. The Earth is small. <laughs> wow, that was bad. The Earth is small and warm. Why is it so warm? Right? If we took the Earth's atmosphere off, just stripped the Earth's atmosphere away, or didn't bother to play that sort of rude game, I say, well, let's look at something near the Earth, like the Moon. The Moon doesn't have an atmosphere. What's the temperature on the Moon? Well, we can do that game. We just simply play an energy budget. We say how much energy from sunlight is hitting the moon, and that's warming up the moon. But if you have a hot, solid object, you emit a blackbody spectrum. And so a hot object is going to radiate away heat. So you have two effects going on. You have radiation being absorbed from the sun that's heating you up, but as you heat up, the Stefan-Boltzmann law tells you that you get brighter at all wavelengths, like the fourth power of the temperature. So what happens is you eventually achieve an equilibrium in which you are absorbing as much radiation from the sun as you radiate away to space due to your black body temperature. If you are too hot, you radiate away more energy than you're receiving from the sun and you cool off. If you are too cold, you're radiating away less energy than you're receiving. There's a net input and your temperature rises. And so you very quickly achieve a thermal equilibrium with the sun. So you can play this game where you basically say, I'm going to balance the energy radiated as infrared photons by the warm Earth against the energy that's absorbed by the Earth. But now I'm going to strip away the atmosphere. When I do that calculation, when I compute what the equilibrium temperature of the Earth should be, there's various ways to calculate this. It's not exactly easy because the Earth has got a shiny surface and things like that. But you get a number around 260 degrees Kelvin. Now, room temperature, maybe not this room, but most rooms are about 300 degrees Kelvin. So this is about 40 degrees Celsius colder than this room. Water freezes at 273 degrees Kelvin. So this is actually, in round numbers, 13 degrees Kelvin less than the freezing point of water. So the Earth's equilibrium temperature should be so cold 
that water should never be liquid. It should always be frozen. But look at yesterday where it's rained all day. Water, water is, in fact, the most commonly found in liquid form on the earth. The oceans, for example, have most of the water on the earth. Only bits of it are vapor in the atmosphere, and we only get frozen water every now and then, every time, certain times of the year, unless we're at the poles. So the question now becomes, why is the Earth so warm? Why is this not the case? Why, isn't, why are we on an ice planet? And the answer turns out to be the effect of the Earth's atmosphere acts as a kind of blanket to keep the Earth warmer than it would be if it had no atmosphere. And that's due to something called the greenhouse effect. Now, we need to understand the greenhouse effect. We need to understand what the total energy budget is. So this is probably one of the more involved diagrams we're going to look at in this section. Let's ask the question, where does all the sunlight go? This is kind of an income-outgo kind of problem here. It's like, I'm going to say, I just gave you $100. How did you spend it? Okay, well, now we've got sunlight streaming in. I've got, at the top of the Earth's atmosphere, one kilowatt for every square meter coming down from the sun in round numbers. Where does it go? So in comes the solar radiation. What's going to happen to it as it passes through the atmosphere until it hits the ground? Well, the first thing I'm going to find is about 51% of that solar radiation is absorbed by the ground and the oceans and heats them up. Makes them warmer, makes them a warm solid. They're going to now begin to emit as an infrared black body because their temperature is going to be around 300 degrees Kelvin. That's going to have a peak by Wien's law out in the infrared. So visible light comes down through the Earth's atmosphere, is absorbed by the ground. 19% of that gets absorbed by the atmosphere on the way down. So some of, the, some of the sun's radiation is infrared radiation and ultraviolet radiation. The Earth's atmosphere is transparent at visible light, but it has quite a bit, it's quite opaque at infrared and ultraviolet wavelengths. But most of the light from the sun is at visible wavelengths anyway. So some of that inf incoming infrared and ultraviolet gets absorbed by the atmosphere. There's also a little bit of visible light absorbed by the atmosphere, but not much. Another 30% of this budget is reflected back into space. We see, for example, that clouds, for example, are about 20% reflective. They're bright, white, shiny things. So sunlight falling on the top of a cloud never makes it to the ground. It gets reflected back off into space. The other roughly 10% uh, is going to be bounced off the ground. Uh, water off the surfaces of the ocean, off of snow fields and things like that. Clouds are going to basically absorb about 3% of the radiation that hits them and reflect about another 20%. Clouds are actually pretty, pretty good. The atmosphere itself is going to absorb about 16% of the energy, and it's going to reflect back about 6%. Some of that absorption is done not only by absorption by molecules in the atmosphere, it's done by absorption from particulates. Those little soot particles and salt particles act as little solids, and they absorb sunlight. They also can be slightly shiny, and they can also reflect light back. So all of these things, when you put them together, give you part of the energy budget. If you look at the ground effect, you get about 51% absorption and about 4% reflection. So in comes the energy, a bunch of it goes out, and a bunch of it gets absorbed. That's the basic energy budget. This is a lot of detail. I'm not expecting you to be able to reproduce this. But just understand that what happens to the sunlight coming in is a fairly complicated energy budget. So how does this lead to us getting very warm? Because notice the old temperature of equilibrium calculation that I did was predicated on 100% absorption of sunlight. Well, we don't get that. We're only getting about 51% absorption of the sun plus 19% absorbed by the atmosphere. 
So all of the sunlight coming in, only about 70% is absorbed, and the other 30% is reflected away. So I only have 70% of the incoming sunlight to do anything with to heat up the Earth. Well, this brings us to the greenhouse effect. As I said before, the atmosphere, in fact, as, as patently obvious if you look around, the atmosphere is completely transparent at visible wavelengths. So visible sunlight comes down to the ground, but it's fairly opaque at infrared wavelengths. In fact, if I look in detail at the transparency of the Earth's atmosphere, this is actually the transparency or transmission of the Earth's atmosphere, one is perfectly transparent, zero is 100% opaque. It's like a brick wall. And this is wavelengths now running from about one micron in the infrared up to about 28 microns. So this is getting up through thermal radiation in the infrared part of the spectrum. So visible light is going to be a tiny little sliver right here on this diagram. And what we see is the atmosphere is only transparent in very, very narrow bands, but in a lot of places the absorption is huge. One of these huge absorption bands here at about six microns is due to water vapor. A lot of these little bands you see here are also due to water vapor absorption in the Earth's atmosphere. This big absorption feature between 9 and 10 microns is due to ozone, the O3 molecule. This whopping huge absorption between 14 and 16 microns is due to carbon dioxide, and then you get this picket fence of water vapor absorption out into the infrared. So if you were to look at the sky, if you had infrared eyes and you walked outside and you had eyes that were visible in light from about 2 to 30 microns, you would feel like you were in a fog bank. You wouldn't be able to see very far in front of your face. Whereas if you go to visible light, the atmosphere suddenly becomes transparent. And this is the key to understanding the greenhouse effect. The infrared opacity comes from molecules, big molecules that have interatomic forces going on, plus the electrons that are shared between them. And so instead of having little tiny narrow bands of absorption like regular atoms that we saw the other day, they have gigantic bands that are very, very broad and very, very deep. The principal molecules that have the strongest absorption characteristics for the Earth's atmosphere are water vapor, carbon dioxide, and methane, and other complex molecules that have bands in the infrared. Notice that while water vapor is a majority component of the atmosphere, that carbon dioxide is what 0.035% in round numbers. Look at the huge amount of opacity. It basically, if you had eyes that could see at 15 micron wavelengths, you wouldn't be able to see. It would look like there was fog right in front of your face. Just a few meters in the room is completely opaque. And we've got to go up through 50 miles to 100 miles of atmosphere. So carbon dioxide has got an impact on the absorption of radiation in the atmosphere far out of proportion to its tiny presence in the Earth's atmosphere. Yes, ma'am? So you're saying that at CO2, you wouldn't be able to see? There's a gap? Well, that's not a gap. That means it's gone completely black. Okay. So this is 100% transparent. That's 100% opaque. So that's basically just like a big brick wall. And carbon dioxide is an amazing brick wall. So is water vapor in some of these bands. So it really absorbs all the radiation going, trying to get out doesn't go very far. So for example, the infrared radiation trying to get in from the outside from the sun directly, the infrared stuff is absorbed right into the atmosphere, just immediately absorbed in the atmosphere. It doesn't even make it to the ground. In fact, it doesn't make it anywhere near the ground. But why is this important? Why do we care about this? You say, well, this never reaches the ground. Ah, but the visible light does reach the ground, and that's the other part. The visible sunlight passes through the Earth's atmosphere like it isn't even there for the most part, and it hits the ground and it warms the ground. Wien's law tells us that the peak wavelength emitted by a hot object is inversely proportional to its temperature. 
The mean temperature of the Earth's surface is around 300 degrees Kelvin. That gives you a peak of the black body curve out in the infrared, exactly where the atmosphere is opaque. So what you can really think of what the ground does is the ground absorbs visible light, turns it into heat, and then re-radiates that as infrared photons. Those infrared photons try to again then radiate out into space, but they can't because they run into this brick wall of the atmospheric opacity. So visible light gets in, warms the ground, the warm ground radiates infrared photons, but those infrared photons are trapped and absorbed by the broadbands in the atmosphere. This makes the Earth, when you do all the numbers, 35 degrees Kelvin warmer than it would be if the atmosphere wasn't there. If there was no atmosphere, like on the moon, sunlight would come in, get absorbed by the ground, heat the ground, and you'd start emitting infrared radiation. The infrared radiation would just stream into space because there's no atmosphere on the moon to absorb it. So it doesn't do any good, as it were. What the atmosphere acts like is as a blanket. Now, last night was kind of a cold night. We're getting into kind of cold weather. Imagine if you decided you were going to sleep on top of the covers. Well, when I like last night, you'd get really cold really fast. And the reason is because your body is basically a black body in round, you know, first approximation. You're radiating away body heat all the time. You're radiating away, and actually it turns out on, in the presence of, a, of air, you actually convect. You actually heat air up close to the body, hot air becomes buoyant, and it draws that heat up away. So if you had an infrared camera that was sensitive, sensitive to hot air, what you'd see is hot air boiling off of a person sitting in the room. That's called convection. So why do we use blankets? Why do those work? Because by throwing a blanket over me, it traps that warm air next to the body rather than letting it radiate, you know, bluff up into the room and give its little bit of heat to the cold air in the room. And so you get fairly warm. As it gets colder, you get a big lofty blanket like a big down comforter. It's got a lot of loft in it. It can hold on a lot of heat and it can hold in, inhibits convection. So you can imagine that you get a sort of an equilibrium going on. If you have a not so cold room, you only need a thin blanket. But if the room is really, really cold, you've got to have a really big blanket in order to keep normally warm because you get a little conduction and things like that going on. What would happen if you tried to go do the same trick of putting on a blanket, but it was summertime, hot and sticky, you're not going to want to go put a big down comforter on because it would trap the heat next to your body and you'd start getting incredibly hot. So you can regulate the temperature of your, you know, when you're in bed by whether you choose a little blanket or a big blanket whether you trap a lot of heat or whether you trap very little heat. And you sort of what you're doing in that is you're sort of trying to achieve a comfortable equilibrium. Well, atmospheres work the same way. If the atmosphere isn't there, it's like sleeping on top of the bed without any covers on. It's, it's going to get cold really fast because you're just going to radiate your heat away. But if you start putting on a blanket, if you put on a blanket that's just right, you'll have a pretty good temperature. But what if you make that blanket really heavy? Then your temperature is going to go up. Well, the same thing happens in an atmosphere. So greenhouse effect works generically in atmospheres because atmospheres are capable of absorbing infrared radiation, which is the main form of radiation emitted by warm planetary surfaces. So how warm or not your planetary surface is going to be is going to depend, if you will, on the thickness of your atmospheric blanket. 
So as we go around the solar system, we're going to see surface temperatures that are dictated not by solar radiation sometimes, but by the interaction between solar radiation and the infrared absorption properties of the atmosphere. On a planet like Venus that has an extremely hot, extremely heavy blanket of an atmosphere, the temperatures are very hot. On a planet like Mars, which has a very, very thin blanket of atmosphere, it's a cold desert. So the greenhouse effect is absolutely important to understanding how atmospheres work throughout the solar system. Questions about the greenhouse effect? This is a very important point we're going to meet over and over again. Let's say a little bit now about the structure of the atmosphere. What does an atmosphere look like? It's obviously not just simply an even layer of air and then suddenly runs out and there's a little sign that says, oh, you're now in space. Atmospheres have a vertical structure. Now, atmospheres are held on the Earth by gravity, and therefore one expects that as you feel the pressure of the air weighed down upon you, that produces a sensation of air pressure. Obviously, how much air is on top of you, how big of a column you've got stacked on your head, determines that pressure. So as you move away from the surface of the Earth and move up in altitude, you're going to have less air above your head, and most of it will become below your feet. And so you expect, as you go up in altitude, the pressure is going to drop, because there's less air above you being pressed down on you by gravity. At sea level, we can express that pressure, an atmosphere of pressure, turns out to be about one kilogram per square centimeter. So if I laid out a square centimeter on the ground here, the weight of all the air in that little tube, one square centimeter, all the way up through the hundred odd kilometers of the atmosphere, is going to have a mass equivalent of about one kilogram for every square centimeter. That translates into the familiar 14 pounds per square inch that we talk about as one atmosphere of pressure. Now, as I move up in altitude, of course, there's more gas below my feet and less gas above my head, and the pressure begins to drop off. It turns out that the way the pressure drops off is exponentially, and it drops off by 50% for every 5.5 kilometers that I go up in altitude. So, for example, let's take Mount Everest here, a very beautiful picture of the summit of Mount Everest. It has an altitude above sea level of 8,850 meters. By the time you get up to 5,500 meters, 5.5 kilometers, the atmospheric pressure is half what it is down at sea level. By the time you're up at, at Mount Everest, the highest place you can stand on the planet at 8,850 meters, the air pressure is one-third of what it is down here on, at near sea level. That's why climbers who go up Mount Everest have to carry oxygen with them. There's literally two-thirds of the atmosphere is below their feet. Now, unless you're a, an alpinist sort of semi-freak like, you know, uh, Reinhold Messner, the guy who went up here, went up to every single over 8,000-meter mountain without supplemental oxygen, right? People like that are way out on the tail of things. Most of us have real problems. In fact, there's a zone here just below this level here at about 25,000 feet known to climbers as the death zone. The atmospheric pressure is so low, brain cells start to die. So that's what we get for the appearance of pressure in the atmosphere. The higher I go, the less it falls off, and it falls off about five and a half kilometers. Now, I'm not, I, don't I don't like climbing mountains. I don't, like, I don't cli like climbing any higher than I want to fall, and that isn't very far at all. But as an astronomer, I do like to go, uh, I do go up to mountaintop observatories. The highest such observatory I've ever been at is on Mauna Kea, which is on the big island of Hawaii. It's the giant mountain up there. The altitude of Mauna Kea is about 4,000 meters, which is pretty close to the five and a half kilometers, so it's a little bit more than, not quite half the atmosphere at ground level. And you really feel it. I mean, you just sort of get the sort of, 
you have to breathe a lot, you know, and de breathe deeper. And you, I feel kind of nauseous for the first day I'm up there. But you can really feel the change in altitude. And I spent a lot of time on mountaintops. There's um, there's some new radio observatories that are being built in the high Atacama Desert that get above five to six thousand meters on these high altitude planes. That's got to be brutal working conditions, <laughs> just brutal. All right. What's the structure of the atmosphere? What does the atmosphere look like as we go up? Is it just simply dense and, dense and warm on the bottom and then you go up and it gets cooler? Actually, it's a lot more complicated than that. It turns out that the Earth's atmosphere looks like kind of a multi-layer cake in which the layers are defined not so much by density and pressure, but by the temperature in those layers. We saw these so-called these things thermal layers because different processes are going to contribute to the heating and cooling at each level. As I drop off the pressure, different heating and cooling mechanisms come into play. The four main zones of the atmosphere are as follows. The lowest level is the troposphere. That's the weather level. That's the level we live in, which is basically from the ground up to a couple of kilometers. Above that is a place called the stratosphere, where as you go through the troposphere, as you go up in altitude, the pressure drops off and the temperature drops off. But as you go up into the stratosphere, all of a sudden the temperature starts going up, even though the pressure is still dropping. And the reason is because you get close to the ozone layer, which is up about 50 kilometers, and you start getting heating because the ozone layer is strongly opaque to ultraviolet radiation. Remember I said that incoming sunlight is absorbed in the upper layers of the atmosphere in the ultraviolet and infrared, but passes through in the visible. Well, in those absorption layers, the atmosphere is going to suddenly start getting warm. And there's a huge amount of opacity in the ultraviolet in the ozone layer, which is a good thing, heats that layer up and gives a temperature inversion called the stratosphere. You then get up into the mesosphere where the temperature starts dropping again with altitude, and of course the pressure is always dropping. And then finally you get into the thermosphere where the highest energy photons from space, the highest energy ultraviolet and x-ray photons, are now heating the gas at the very top of the atmosphere and the temperature rises again. Above the thermosphere, the atmosphere just kind of peters out into interplanetary space. So atmospheres don't have an edge. There's no you know, boundary that says, oh, you're now in space. You just sort of run out of atmosphere slowly. But as you move up vertically, you can see different heating processes coming into play. Well, that's a lot of words. Let's look at a picture. Here's a, a two-scale picture of the Earth's atmosphere. The troposphere basically extends in round numbers up to about 10 kilometers. It's the layer in which we have mountains and clouds and stuff like that. The layer between 10 and 50 kilometers is the stratosphere. And in between at about, you know, I misspoke earlier, at about 30 kilometers is where the ozone layer is. And you suddenly get an increase in heating from ultraviolet absorption. Between 50 and 85 kilometers, you get the mesosphere, the middle zone between the stratosphere and outer space. And then finally, above 85 kilometers, you get into the thermosphere, where you start heating because the ultraviolet and x-ray photons, which only penetrate this far, give up their energy here. Ultraviolet photons give up their energy here. Infrared photons give up their energy in these layers down the troposphere. So when you add all those things up together, and I plot the temperature, and I plot in these kind of funny vertical curves. I've drawn this red curve here where temperature increases to the right and decreases cooler to the left, hotter to the right. On the troposphere, as I go up in altitude, of course, the pressure is always dropping. It, it drops by half for every five and a half kilometers I go up. So in round numbers, it's about half earth uh, ground pressure at about five and a half kilometers. Just above the troposphere stratosphere boundary at 10, 11 kilometers, it's a quarter, and so on geometrically up the line. 
So the temperature drops, and then here in the, in the stratosphere, between the stratosphere and the mesosphere, the temperature inverts. We talk about a temperature inversion because there's additional heating in this layer from ultraviolet photons. And so instead of getting colder, it actually starts getting hotter. In fact, it gets hotter than the ground down here, even though the pressure is falling off dramatically. When you leave that place where the ultraviolet photons are being absorbed, you begin to drop in temperature very dramatically again through the so-called mesosphere. And then when you get up into the thermosphere, the highest energy ultraviolet and X-ray photons begin to heat the gas dramatically, but it's so thin it doesn't matter really, as far as your, your sensation of it. So we feel nice and warm and cozy in the ground because we're surrounded by this nice, dense blanket of air. You get up very far and you get very cold very fast. I mean, I don't really show in detail what these temperature changes are like, but if any of you have ever flown on a, like an international transcontinental flight, sometimes they show maps and they tell you the altitude and the outside temperature. I remember flying once from the U.S. to Asia. We were up around 30,000, 40,000 40, feet was the cruising altitude. The temperature outside was minus 60 Celsius. So, and 40,000 feet is, you know, it's just, it's just up, uh, 40,000 feet is, is what? Well, I can't remember anymore. That's up around 10, that's up basically near the top of the troposphere. So it's really cold. But you do get these vertical structures. We're going to look in other planetary atmospheres for what their thermal structures are like, too, because that tells us something about the way in which those atmospheres are laid out. So it's not a completely academic exercise. We're going to be drawing pictures like this for various planetary atmospheres as we encounter them and see what that tells us about the nature of the atmosphere. If I took away the ozone layer, I would break up this, this inversion, temperature inversion in the stratosphere. It's one of the things the ozone layer does for us. Now, where did the atmosphere come from? The final question I want to bring up today is, what is the origin of the atmosphere? Where do all the gases come from? I said before that the planets in the solar system formed with the sun. They formed mostly out of hydrogen and helium. But if I look around me now, there isn't any hydrogen and helium around. After losing most of that hydrogen and helium, the Earth really wouldn't have had much of an atmosphere. In fact, when the Earth was young and molten, it would have been too hot to hold on to an atmosphere. The atoms would have been moving so fast from all the heat from all the molten surface and all the heat of formation of the Earth, it couldn't even hold on to carbon dioxide and water vapor for the most part. It would just lose it all to space. The Earth should have been born bone dry, but it wasn't. And the reason for that is some of those gases from the surface were lost, but there were gases dissolved in the molten rock. Carbon dioxide, water vapor, and all the other gases were dissolved in the rock like carbon dioxide dissolved in a bottle of fizzy water, in a bottle of soda pop. And if you suddenly take the lid off the soda pop, what happens? All the dissolved carbon dioxide suddenly goes poosh out through the top of the, the cap. So when volcanoes are a way of the earth, if you will, pulling the cap on the dissolved gases contained within it. And what we find is if we look at volcanoes today that are belching out material, we often think of volcanoes as oozing hot lava. And hot lava is one of the components of a volcano, but if you look at near a volcano, it's also belching tremendous amounts of gases, just like popping the top on the soda pop. What we find in those gases is mostly water vapor and carbon dioxide, small amounts of nitrogen and sulfates, that's what gives you the volcanic brimstone stink, but no oxygen. There's no O2 at all. It's carbon dioxide, water vapor, a little bit of nitrogen stuff, and some argon as well gets mixed in with that as well. So what we see belching out of volcanoes, volcanic outgassing would have built the primordial atmosphere of the primordial earth because that's what gases would come bubbling out of the soda pop of dissolved gases and magma of the earth. 
But the composition being mostly water vapor and carbon dioxide and no oxygen at all, it does not reflect the current day composition of the atmosphere around us. So the big question we have to ask is, if this is what the primordial atmosphere looks like, how did it get to the atmosphere that's mostly nitrogen and oxygen, the minority contributions coming out of volcanoes today? Where'd all the carbon dioxide and water go? Well, we know where the water went. Look around you in the oceans. But where did the carbon dioxide go? The Earth should have been born with a gigantic carbon dioxide atmosphere. In fact, if we, if we think about how the carbon dioxide should have come out of the volcanoes, the Earth should have been born with a thousand times more carbon dioxide than we have today. Where did it all go? Well, the answer is we're warm enough for liquid water, and the water vapor rains out. And when water vapor rains out of the atmosphere to form the oceans, it takes and dissolves carbon dioxide with it. Again, a bottle of soda pop is an exact example. Carbon dioxide is easily soluble in water. That's how soda pop and beer work. So CO2 dissolves into the ocean water and slowly precipitates out of the water as carbonates, as things like limestone and carbon-bearing compounds. So the fact that the Earth could form liquid water actually scrubbed over many millions of years the carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere into the oceans and then locked it up into crustal rocks and dissolved it into the ocean water. So ocean water is kind of like a kind of soda pop at some level. And then some of that precipitates out. There's chemical reactions that go on with the stuff in the water that make carbonaceous things like limestone. Those sink to the bottom of the ocean floor and form rocks. Nitrogen molecule is chemically inactive, so it does not participate in this chemistry, and so it stays in the atmosphere. So you start out with tons of carbon dioxide, tons of water vapor, and a little bit of nitrogen. The water vapor rains into the oceans, drags the carbon dioxide with it, and leaves the nitrogen behind. And that's why the atmosphere now is a mostly nitrogen atmosphere, because the nitrogen doesn't participate in this water chemistry, but carbon dioxide does. So here's, in fact, where some of the carbon dioxide from the primordial atmosphere, it's in all the limestone layers. Here's a nice road cut out near uh, Sharon Springs, New York. This limestone here was once part of the Earth's primordial atmosphere, but now it's part in a solid form because of precipitation in water. All right, well, that explains the carbon dioxide, but where'd the oxygen come from? Well, molecular oxygen comes from life. The only process we know of that can form O2 molecules is photosynthesis in plants and algae. If we look at the oxygen content in the distant past to the present, over the last 600 million years, the oxygen content has gone from 1% initial content to 21% that we see around us today. And it's taken about a half a billion years to do that in round numbers. Now, ozone is another piece here that has to do with life. It forms up in the stratosphere when molecular oxygen is encountering ultraviolet photons. It blocks UV from coming down from the sun and actually makes life possible because that UV would cause so much mutation, the life would never be able to survive. So life makes oxygen, and oxygen shields the life from the sun and from, from its parent star. So oxygen-2 and oxygen-3 in a planetary atmosphere are signs of life, at least life as we understand it. Here's, in fact, some of the oldest forms of life on the Earth. These are 500 million-year-old stromatolite beds out in New York in Saratoga Springs, so-called uh, petrified sea gardens. This is what the original source, this is the original oxygen generator for the Earth. Atmospheres are extremely complex dynamic systems. They evolve over time. In the past, we had a hot, heavy carbon dioxide atmosphere with lots of water vapor that formed the oceans, locked up the carbon dioxide in, in 
carbonaceous rocks, and then water formed because photosynthetic life was possible in liquid water worn by the sun. This continues into the present day. Carbon dioxide is regulated by a complex cycle. We have increases in oxygen and methane from biomass, and we're having human activity like fuel burning and agriculture, which is changing the carbon dioxide content of our atmosphere. It's a very interesting topic to talk about atmospheric change, and fortunately it's beyond the, the, the um, scope of this class. But we're going to look in other planets for signs of planetary evolution. The surfaces are dynamic and evolve, and the atmospheres are dynamic and evolve over the billions of years of their existence. So tomorrow we're going to look at a place that hasn't evolved much, the moon. Oops.